You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The presidents of the United States and Russia make their cases about Ukraine to the world. The EU imposes another round of sanctions on Myanmar. Does nobody have any better ideas? And how one overweight feline superseded the more orthodox attractions of one Polish city. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lynn O'Donnell and Bill Hayton will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll have the latest in our series reflecting on a year of Russia's assault on Ukraine. And we'll hear from the author of a new book on the White Rose, the anti-Nazi group whose non-violent campaign came to a violent end 80 years ago this week. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And welcome to today's Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined by Lynn O'Donnell, a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine, and by Bill Hayton, Associate Fellow for the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, Bill, first of all, welcome back to the show. You too have that dazed, faraway glaze of somebody who recently survived the Munich Security Conference. How was it for you? I I, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Although I was actually doing some honest work, unlike you. Journalists, I, I was I was doing the hard work of moderating, sitting in a room with other people and letting them speak. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> as as I indeed am doing right now, it, it is actually possibly less stressful than what we were doing. And a a plug, if I will, for this coming Saturday's Foreign Desk, which does contain the first fruits uh, of our labours at Munich. Um, what was your panel that you moderated about? We were talking about the Indo-Pacific. It's the buzzword. Um, everything between India and the Pacific. Um, and hence, hence, the the name. hence the name and we were talking about maritime security and it was chatham house rule which means i can't tell you who said what okay but it was interesting <laughs> I, I think i think the phrase frankly, is, a, is a full and frank exchange of views i think is the traditional well, way that, that's that's the usual diplomatic euphemism for blood everywhere well, well it wasn't quite physical but it mm. was it was it was um so so we basically we're just going to have to take your word for it that it was an interesting discussion yes oh, okay yeah, fair yeah, enough yeah. well i'm, I'm happy yeah. to do that uh, and, and lynn we have mentioned this before I, f- I feel like we should have an advent calendar uh, but your trip to venice is closer than it was last time we asked you about it. <laughs> Zero minus two days now. Yeah, I feel like I, I planned it so long ago and I've been talking about it for so long. Um, it's going to be either really fantastic or a real disappointment. Uh, have, have you planned anything at all? No. Are, are you? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit like this myself when I travel places. I mean, I'm usually working, but I know there's other things in a place. But yeah, I usually just tend to make it up when I get there. Yes, um, I, I might read something on the plane on the way. But yeah, that, that's the way we work. I think you get into the habit as a journalist, don't you, of just working on one thing until you have to go and work on another thing somewhere else and just wing it when you get there. Life as a series of deadline crises. Um, but we will start today's show 
proper in Russia, where the president thereof, Vladimir Putin, has delivered a quite mad yet weirdly boring speech. His annual State of the Nation oration had one headline, the suspension of Russia's participation in the New START nuclear arms reduction treaty signed by Russia and the US in 2010. The rest of it was a by now familiar litany of undignified whining about how the big bad world is picking on poor little Russia and morbid wittering about the perfidious advance of woke culture, whatever that even is, which suggests Putin is getting most of his intelligence on the Western world these days from the online edition of the Daily Express. Also speaking today in Warsaw, having swung by Kiev yesterday, was US President Joe Biden. The people across Europe saw for decades appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. U.S. President Joe Biden speaking in Warsaw earlier. Um, We will come to Vladimir Putin's speech shortly, but to Biden's first. And Bill, it struck me yesterday and it struck me today that there was an opportunity here if someone on his writing team was up to it for the Ich bin ein Berliner moment or the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall one-liner. He didn't quite reach that height, I don't think, but did you like the whole appeased versus opposed thing? A nice pun. I wonder if it works in um, in Polish. Though. <laughs> um, I guess I guess no, no, no was was pretty clear. I, I but should, frankly, I, I think he could have you know he could have just turned up and said anything, couldn't he? With a, with a crowd like that. Indeed, I, I should possibly warn viewers at this point that I will be attempting to pronounce something Polish later in the show. I'm just apologising in advance. I'm managing expectations basically. Um, Lynn, did you think Biden's speech was any more or less than might have been expected in the circumstances? I'm, I'm, I'm with Bill. I think that just turning up was the the really big deal. Mm. He he went to Kiev, and um, he uh, his support is unequivocal. And um, unlike the I am a uh, jelly donut speech, (laughs) um, he's made it very clear, I think, um, that uh, Ukraine will not be beaten by Russia is a very, very serious and very clear message. And it's what Ukrainians wanted to hear and I think it's what NATO wanted to hear. Because, of course, um, the longer the war drags on, the more doubt there will be about America's resolve. And let's face it, uh, NATO needs America. And at this juncture, Ukraine certainly needs the money and the weaponry that America can offer it. So um, I think um, I think he made his message clear and that's what was needed. Well, let's go back to Vladimir Putin's speech. And, and Bill, for a... <laughs> I don't. I mean, there was all sorts of rumours about what he would announce, where, you know, closing the borders, another mass mobilisation, whatever. And instead, what we get is the suspension 
of the cancellation. Not the cancellation, merely Russia's suspension from participating in the New START treaty, which is not, it's not nothing, but that's, it's pretty weak source, isn't it? Especially the day after Biden has done that extraordinary visit to Kiev. Yeah, I think the significance of the announcement is that this is the last nuclear arms control agreement that still exists Mm. between the US and Russia. I mean, it had another three years to run. Uh, It was renewed in in 2021 for for five years. Um, So it doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly they're going to kind of build a whole load of nuclear weapons. I mean, what this talks about is it limits the number of deployed weapons. So you can kind of have them in a bunker in a mountain somewhere. You're just not allowed to put them on on a rocket or whatever. And it takes a lot of time for states to build up nuclear arsenals and things. But what it does do is diminish the communication and the trust. You know, even at this time of crisis, there have presumably been still officials on both sides who ring one another up from time to time and say, how many warheads have you got? And, you know, kind of, are they being looked after? And all that kind of stuff. And then if suddenly these states, these two states don't know what the other side is up to, it increases the uncertainty and, and, and the risk. Uh, it was quite good fun, uh, Putin's set piece, Lynn, for amateur Kremlinologists. And it's possible that some of the footage and pictures of the audience was edited somewhat unsympathetically. But nevertheless, it is clear that Putin's oratory had a a soporific effect on some of them. Those dignitaries pictured falling asleep, should they not book rooms on the upper floors for the foreseeable future? They could book a space in the House of Lords, (laughs) couldn't they? They'd be be amongst fellow travellers. You know, it was always going to be a... a, um, Standing ovation every 30 seconds. I mean, you know, these are set You, you, you wouldn't want to be the first bloke to stop clapping, <laughs> would you? <laughs> well, the last to stand, the first to sit down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we got what we expected. But I, I also think that, you know, raising, yeah, of course, all of the stuff about um, homosexuality and um, pedophilia and all that nasty, you know, grime that he brought into it as a, a justification for his own existence. Um, um, I, you know, it's it's really low rent stuff. It's quite vulgar. But beyond that, I think that the the, the re raising the spectre of the use of tactical nuclear weapons, I think, was really the the punch um, to the whole thing. And and that's what we need to be thinking about and worrying about. I think, uh, Bill, you wheeled out the diplomatic euphemism, full and frank exchange of views earlier. We, we heard a, a masterclass in diplomatic uh, euphemism as well from China's foreign minister, who also spoke today. Every Everybody's having a go. Um, he, he described China as, and I quote, deeply concerned. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. What do you think that actually means? Well, I mean, it, I mean, I, I think what we're learning here is that a lot of Chinese diplomats aren't very good at diplomacy. Um, I mean, Wang Yi. I mean, he's not the foreign minister, but he's he's more important than the foreign minister. He's in he's in, in the in the Communist Party External Affairs Commission, um, and he came to Munich mm-hmm. uh, as you saw it over the weekend and said basically, you know, you know, China is neutral, and you know, we want a you know a fair solution on, on all this side. And then he goes to you know Moscow, not just on a random trip, but on the day of the big speech. I mean, the the the, the body language, everything is you know, our strategic interest is in propping up the Putin regime. And and then coming to Europe and saying you should you know do a deal with Russia, you should stop supplying Ukraine with arms and all the rest of it. So for the you know the, I mean I've had a meeting you know today with a, you know a senior you know policy watcher from China you know who's basically the same message you know that the, the, the European states should not be supporting Ukraine. Well, in that case, it's pretty clear what the outcome of the conflict is going to be, isn't it? You know, um, and and yet China's trying to present this as a, as a, a neutral perspective, and at the same time. 
trying to persuade European leaders that they should divorce from the US and seek their own you know, arrangements, um, as if somehow, uh, you know, by doing that, that would bring about a more stable and peaceful situation in Europe. So I, I think they, 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 they misunderstand, really, the strategic situation in Europe massively. Yeah, just to follow that up quickly, though, Bill, is it also being too cynical to suggest that maybe China isn't altogether displeased by the spectacle of Russia and one removed NATO smashing each other's militaries up all the way on the other side of the world from where they are? Well, there is that. I mean, and China is coming out, you know, a, a big winner in lots of ways. I mean, um, it's Russia is becoming more dependent upon it. Um, you know, whether Russia will have to start paying for more things in, in renminbi rather than, you know, in, in US dollars, that'll please them. Um, whether they'll get, you know, more say over uh, more leverage over Russia's you know policy actions in, in Central Asia that kind of thing um, yeah maybe you know maybe they are but um, their idea that they're going to I think you know um, you know, use this to uh, talk you know to to to, to, champ to champion this uh, Xi Jinping's idea of the community of shared future the the Chinese vision for a, a new order of international relations um, I think Europeans look at this and you know think actually I think we quite like the old one to be honest <laughs> <laughs> uh, just finally on this Lin uh, Wang Yi is supposed to be floating right when he visits Moscow some sort of peace plan for Ukraine uh, what do we anticipate from that is this a serious pitch China is making or are they just enjoying themselves at this point? Well, he's flagging a speech, I think, that um, President Xi Jinping is expected to make on Friday, which has been broadcast as the peace speech. Uh, China has long tried to place itself as um, a peacemaker. Um, Non-interference in um, the affairs of other countries has, has been its rallying cry until, of course, it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I haven't heard it say that um, in the past year about this situation. But I think that it's all of a piece. I've never really seen China's diplomatic outreach as being mature. It's, it's you know, it's not a year ago that we had the wolf warrior stuff, <laughs> where um, as rude as you could possibly get was the way you were supposed to be as a Chinese diplomat until um, we look a bit silly and um, we don't do that anymore. And the greatest proponents of of that obnoxiousness have been, you know, bunged into the into a back room to do other things. So I I kind of feel that they're you know to use that old Deng Xiaoping um, uh, 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 saying a euphemism um, they're they're crossing the river by feeling the stones and this gives them another another crossing if you like but I I just don't see that China can credibly uh, place itself as as a peacemaker for anything because it doesn't have the diplomatic maturity or heft or international respect to do that well let's move on from Russia but we will be sticking with the theme of belligerent paranoid tyrannies which have given little thought to the possibility that the problem might be them Myanmar finds itself on the receiving end of a sixth round of sanctions by the European Union. Among those individuals subjected to asset freezes and travel bans are Energy Minister Myo Mint U, a bunch of senior military officers and the CEOs of three armaments manufacturers. These and previous rounds of sanction are a response to the ongoing large-scale pogrom being conducted by Myanmar against its Kachin and Rohingya minorities, especially since the coup d'etat of 2021. Um... 
Phil, if five rounds of sanctions haven't made an appreciable difference to Myanmar's attitude, is the sixth going to be the one that does it? I think there's a short answer to that one, isn't there? It's the word no. <laughs> if you can flesh that out a little bit <laughs> yeah. uh, in the interest yes. of, <laughs> of, of radio, yes, yes, that would be great. Um, yeah, uh, no. I mean, the the, Chi- the Myanmar military uh, is absolutely determined, I think, to stay in power, to suppress the, the uprising by force, and uh, they're not going to allow this uh, to stop them. Uh, it's great that the European Union is doing what it can. I mean, it would be awful if it was discovered that European manufacturers were supplying the spare parts for the aircraft that are bombing the rebels and that kind of thing. So we have a tool against that. Um, but it's not as if, uh, I mean, these are basically Russian and Chinese built you know, aircraft um, and the spare parts will be coming from Russia and China. Uh, and, the, and the cronies, the sort of the intermediary business people with the connections, um, they are, are well embedded in, in China and Russia, and, and I'm sure those uh, those spare parts and things will, will keep on flowing somehow. Uh, Lynn, as a general principle, uh, sanctions, I, I, I confess to being something of a sanction sceptic. They often look like the thing you do when you want to look like you're doing something but don't actually want to do anything. Well, I think that... Um, there is some use in them. They mm. send a message that um, these people are odious, and um, maybe the wives of, of the the you know Burmese generals won't be going shopping in Paris anytime soon. Maybe that's what it's about. They do they do hurt to some extent. The um, State Department, the U.S. State Department, recently expanded its uh, sanctions on Taliban figures, um, making it harder for them to you know. There's not going to be very many of them who are um, uh, applying for US visas, I'm sure. But these sort of things, the messages are picked up by other countries. And we know that um, family of Taliban are living abroad, going to school abroad, that they're, you know, they're having nice... um, uh, lives, um, free lives, and their their daughters are living freely um, outside of Afghanistan. And um, if these sanctions can make life harder for them and their families, then it does send a message that w- the, there is a, a lack of approval. Um, but I think that it's a long, slow burn. It's not immediate. And um, we can look at back at the last 18 months of the Taliban, for instance, in Afghanistan, and really every time something nasty is said about them, they just double down um, and things get worse for Afghan people. But they can't travel and um, if their assets weren't tied up um, uh, with uh, like-minded drug dealers, for instance, <laughs> and um, in Dubai property markets and the Malaysian stock market, then uh, maybe life would be a little bit harder. But if it if they if it is that they have families living comfortably, as some of them do in places like Hamilton, for instance, in New Zealand, where the spokesman of the foreign ministry has family living, um, then I think yeah, it, it it will make life harder for individuals, and that's the point. But just to follow that up, Lynn, about Afghanistan in particular which is a, a country you know very well and have reported from extensively, is there not a perhaps somewhat whimsical counter-argument that it would be vastly more discombobulating to the Taliban if all sanctions were lifted, if the world just said, fine, you're a normal country, we will trade and interact with you, we will come, we will go, we will invest, we will produce, we will sell things? Because that's worked so well for North Korea, hasn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> and really, that's that's the direction that Afghanistan is going in. I I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's it's very difficult to know. Um, what do you do? 
um, if it was me, we, you know, when mm. I am the president of the world... Um, can't come soon I, enough. Can't then. come soon, you know, any day now, um, then um, I, I, I would certainly make sure that nobody associated with the leadership of the Taliban was allowed to leave their country. All foreign passports would be cancelled. All family would be deported back to Afghanistan. See, like, see how you like it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, just to return uh, finally on this to me, Myanmar, Bill, this is a story that has been overtaken by any number of subsequent crises. Do you get the sense, though, that the policymakers who potentially could do something meaningful about this, and I guess inevitably we're looking at principally at the United States, are still paying that much attention to this, or, or has the junta basically won? Um, no, people have uh, very successfully said uh, there is a, a community called ASEAN, the Association mm -hmm. of Southeast Asian Nations. They are, have tried to take a lead on this. Let's let's give this to... They have empowered ASEAN, which is basically a way of washing their own hands of it. And, and uh, interestingly, the US and, and China is wanting that they can agree on that, uh, you know, that ASEAN should take responsibility for this. Actually, I think, you know, the US and ASEAN... Uh, sorry, US and China could, could work together on Myanmar if they, if they so chose uh, on this point. Because no one's going to uh, put pressure on, on the Myanmar leadership because they assume that China and India and the other neighbours will not do that. It's not going to play ball. Um, and so we're sort of left with this horrible halfway house where we're sort of imposing sanctions and, and calling on, you know, on, the, on, the, on the junta to comply with you know, standards of humanitarian law, all the rest of it, but not actually doing anything to solve the problem. So I think at some point, you know, they're, they're going to, you know, they are going to have to bite the bullet. And at some point, I fear, you know, there's, the military are so entrenched that at some point there's going to have to be some deal done with the military, as, as, as you know, unpleasant as that sounds. Because at the moment, we're just seeing, you know, villages getting bombed. Um, and much as, you know, we would love, you know, when Lin is president of the world to kind of <laughs> overthrow, you know, evil dictators. I just think, I just think the, you know, the reality on the ground is a demented and determined regime that is prepared to kind of, you know, take the country down in flames. Well, Bill Hayton and President-elect Lynn O'Donnell, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly, but it's time now for the second part in this week's series marking the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, looking in depth at its impact on lives, society and the country. One of the many tasks at hand for Ukrainian leaders is understanding how to reconstruct its destroyed cities. Alexander Senkevich is the mayor of Mykolaiv, whose city came under siege by Russian forces last February and into March 2022. Last month, the mayor was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, making the case for international support. He spoke to Monocle's Tom Webb about being at the summit. The session uh, is about uh, renovation of Ukraine after the war. So from emergency needs to development of our cities, our local communities, because we think that we need to build Ukraine from the bottom, I mean, from the lowest level of uh, local governments, local city councils. We will share the, our experience on, on how we passed this war, I mean, how we defended our communities and what we do now and what we plan to do in future after this war will end. And what has your experience been? The experience is really hard, you know, for people who were civilians uh, and planned uh, development of their territories for the future, like sustainable development and green technologies, green uh, heating, green uh, electricity. We started to be defenders of our city. We built fortifications, we uh, buildings, we we built different 
we helped our army to defend our city and our uh, and our country. And then we mo we moved our enemy back. We helped army to be more strong and to regroup and to get more force to move forward and push Russians up behind the Kherson. So you are in a stronghold at the moment. Are you now in a position to rebuild? Yes, Mikolaev has uh, a really good experience in survival because our city was eight months without drinking water at all because Russians ruined our pipes that helped us to bring fresh water from Dnipro River uh, near Kherson to the city of Mikolaev. Before the war, we pumped 120,000 cubic meters per day to the city of Mikolaev. Then, after the ruin of the pump station and those pipes, we had eight months of uh, lack of drinking water. So we made boreholes, we took water under the ground, and we shared it, we distributed it to people. Today, we, we resolved this problem with water. We are resolving problems with electricity. We are building a new plan of renovation. We started with the general plan, master plan of the city, which will be the base of our renovation plan. And moreover, we don't want to just to rebuild those ruined objects ruined by the war, but we want to make it better. Instead, let's say, of two old schools to build one modern school and do some, you know, roads connected with uh, with those children who need education. So it will be like build back better rule that we plan to use on, on the renovation. So as soon as this war happens, we need to prepare all the documentations, all the plans, all the bureaucracy procedures to start the, uh, rebuild and renovate Ukraine after the end of the war. The scars of war are still being discovered in Mykolaiv, Russian torture chambers. What has the experience of warfare been like for the city? Every time when you think that it's hard, it is hard for you to live or you have really big problems, start to think about those cities that, or about those people who, who have bigger problems who are now under shelling, everyday shelling, because Mikolaev, before the liberation of her son, was on, under everyday shelling. And let's say we have we had only 46 days without shellings. All other days we were bombarded by Russians, missiles, cluster bombs and everything. So today we are in a silent mode. We have time to get all those ruins out of the city, to renovate some buildings, houses, private houses, and to launch water, heating, and electricity. So we work on that, on survival, but we still uh, we already think about development. For the cities that are still under attack, is the West doing enough? Is Germany doing enough? You know, sometimes uh, people ask me why our army goes so slow, goes so slow forward. But I usually say that we need to save as many people as we can because our Western partners help us with the armory, with weapons, with tanks and everything, but no one will fight instead of us. So we need to save our lives, uh, lives of our soldiers, and for sure we need help of all the uh, Western world because we we are fighting now not with with uh, Russia. It's another war with, between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between uh, Russian world and Western civilization. So you you remember the the World War Two when everyone had silence 
when Hitler started to occupy different territories. And we see it grew to the World War II. So today, world uh, incorporation uh, stops this World War III, and Ukraine is on front line. Finally, there is a session on energy transformation in Ukraine. You spoke about pipelines being destroyed. In Mykolaiv, what is the situation with energy? To be honest, we we have we experience problems with electricity, but they are less than in other parts of Ukraine because there is a nuclear station near us that provides us with electricity. But anyway, let's say we have like uh, blackouts on two on four to switch off uh, four hours with electricity, and we kind of you know already familiar with this situation uh, but another problem that our enterprises don't work because of these problems and this is the, the big the next challenge that we have is to launch all the productions and uh, to get investments to make them bigger I think Ukrainians, for sure, Mikolaev citizens, we don't want to be those poor guys who will always ask for money. Please help us. Please. We want to be partners who want to grow their production, who want to, to get not just, you know, grants, money for free, but the investments that we are ready to turn back and to help businesses, uh, uh, let's say Western businesses, to earn money in Ukraine. That was Alexander Sinkiewicz, mayor of Mykolaiv, talking to Tom Webb. Uh, now, it would be helpful if listeners would do us the tremendous favour of imagining the sound of squealing tyres and the stench of burning rubber as we pull a giddying handbrake segue from tragedy to whimsy. According to the internet, the absolute top tourist attraction in the Polish town of... This is not going to go well, but let's have a crack at this. Was it Szczecin? Szczecin. Bill's been there. Or Stettin, as Winston Churchill would have had it. Indeed. Have you Mm. been there? Uh, I've been nearby. Okay. I've been to Gdansk, which is lovely and relatively Mm. easy to pronounce. But Mm. we're we're going with your pronunciation. Mm. Anyway, it no longer is its 14th century Pomeranian castle, Oda River Promenade or Museum of Happiness that is its top tourist attraction, but a fat black and white cat named Gatsek, who can usually be found loafing on Kazubska Street and has a near five-star rating from more than 1,000 Google reviews, or rather had as some humorless functionary alerted by the fuss, appears now to have taken them down. Lynn, how far would you travel specifically in order to see a large cat? It sounds like it might be one of the, um, besides the Pomeranian Castle, only reasons to go to (laughs) this town that I can't pronounce the name of. Um, He did get a one-star rating from somebody who accused him of stealing a sausage. Fair. Fair, I thought too. Um, uh, maybe if I was in the vicinity, I would. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd take a left turn to go and see this uh, this big fat cat. Yeah. I, I, I do sympathise though with Gatsack to the extent that it is incredibly annoying when your really good rating gets completely kiboshed by one grumpy customer. Like I, I have one of my books has been massively balked on Amazon by somebody who gave it one star with the review. This isn't a novel. 
and it isn't. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. So therefore, it's a truthful statement, well, but, yeah, and you yeah, can't I, get I, Amazon to take exactly, it off. Exactly. I, I, I can't. I can't disagree with their analysis, but but giving it one star on the basis that it isn't something it never claims. This is to not be. a sausage. Uh, exactly. There's any number of things it's not. Um, I, Hunt them down. Exactly. Uh, I appear. I, I fear rather we may have deviated from the point somewhat. Mm. Um, Bill, would would you be excited to go and see a, a large cat uh well i mean it's interesting uh in terms of you know tourism attractions that um where i live in in colchester has the university of essex campus nearby mm-hmm. uh and there's a campus cat i think it's known his real name is pebbles has a twitter account with two and a half thousand followers which is only fifty thousand less <laughs> than the entire university has um, um, and is a celebrity in its own right people you know if you if you're an academic you know you post about your learned papers nobody takes an interest you put a picture of the cat up there Stratospheric. Off you go. Is 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 it anybody's cat in particular, or is it just is it just uh, has I, it just adopted the the university? I think it has technically has an owner, and I think the main problem is trying to uh, persuade other potential feeders that they are not the owner and that they should leave the feeding to somebody else. Hence the fat cat. We we did want to broaden this out to ask, uh, and you have partially answered the question, Bill. If your if your own hometown or indeed anywhere else you've been has a weird related tourist attraction of that sort, because it does seem to be otherwise, Lynn, a largely Polish phenomenon. Something similar happened a couple of years back with a golden retriever which sat on a balcony in Gdansk, and all of a sudden that became an internet phenomenon because. I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, it was a nice-looking dog, but it was just fundamentally sitting on a balcony. Just happened to be there. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I liked a lot about uh, Istanbul is the uh, the cats everywhere. Um, I lived in Istanbul for about a, a year um, because of its proximity to the, the war next door in, in Iraq. And I reckon I said hello to probably 90% of the cats in Istanbul. I found it really quite um, charming. Um, in my vicinity, um, as far as tourist attractions, go um no um cats no i'm gonna head up a little in a in a short time to the yorkshire sculpture park i think that um there might be uh, some uh i don't know some there, is a Jeff Coons there cat, you go I that's think. what i was trying yeah. to think of yeah. his name jeff yeah, yeah. jeff coons's cat um was Assuming there no for one's some time. over and smashed it i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a hundred pieces yeah. <laughs> are, are you going there before or after you go to venice or should we, should we save the yorkshire sculpture <laughs> park for the next time you're on well let's do that because it is after but very soon after because I I, I I i it, it's not quite the same thing but i i do want to give a shout out to uh, a small town in new south wales called gundagai um which you tend to drive through when you are leaving wagga wagga which i go to fairly regularly as regular listeners will be aware that's where i was born but there's there's an ancient australian song about the dog that sits on the tucker box five miles from gundagai and at roughly that spot there is a service station coffee shop etc and a statue of the dog sitting on a tucker box and i don't know how long the addition to that has been there it may have been there for some while and i just wasn't paying any attention and for which i apologize uh, to the good people of gundagai uh, but there's now a separate box on which you can put your own dog uh, with a view to taking a picture of it so you therefore have a picture of the dog sitting on your dog sitting on a tucker box five miles from Gundagai. We did try this with my brother's dog. It was not terrifically interested. Uh, we did a certain amount of. Would it- you travel 
specifically to have your photograph taken well, with I, I, dog I, on we, well, so I guess you did. Didn't well, you? we. I, I mean, I've had a lot of pictures taken over the years with my my cousin sitting next to the dog. It's mm. become a sort of every year he just gets larger and larger and larger. We've been doing this for some time, but um, no, the, the dog wasn't having it. Sausages. Very fast, Bobby. Yeah. There are people go to Edinburgh just to have their photograph taken with a statue of a dog. Also they? true, but that's that's a statue, not a live thing, yeah, whereas Gatsek, the fat cat, is very much still with us, and though the reviews aren't there anymore, the legend lives on. Uh, Bill Hayton and Lynn O'Donnell, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to the Monocle Daily. We'll be back right after this. Have you got your hands on our sister magazine, Confect, yet? Well, you might also be interested in Confect Corner. Our podcast accompaniment, hosted by me, Sophie Grove, with Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak between London and Zurich. Join us each month for stories on travel, fashion and craft, and drinking and dining across Europe and beyond. Episode 1 is available now, where we discuss the art of scent, celebrate the sanctuary of the bathroom and meet the designers Paula Gabez and Kazu Hugler. I'm not interested in producing many pieces of one design. I'm always interested in the person who is going to wear it. Subscribe at confectmagazine.com or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Finally on today's show, occasionally within history's darkest periods, there are glimmers of brightness and incredible stories of bravery. In Munich in 1942, a small group of students and their professor mounted the White Rose, a campaign of non-violent resistance to the Nazis. The White Rose campaigned via leaflets and graffiti before they were apprehended by the Gestapo. Tomorrow marks the 80th anniversary of the executions of three members of the White Rose, Christoph Probst and the siblings Hans and Sophie Scholl. Alexandra Lloyd, author of Defying Hitler, the White Rose Pamphlets, spoke to Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs about the resistance circle and started by describing the members of the group. So the White Rose involved quite a lot of people on the peripheries, but really at the heart of it there were six individuals in Munich in southern Germany. So there were five students, uh, Sophie Scholl, Hans Scholl, Willi Graf, Christoph Probst and Alexander Schmorell. And then there was an academic, Professor Kurt Huber. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of them, because one of the things that I found so interesting, not only is how young a lot of the people who are spearheading this were, but also some of their experience on the front line and how they were influenced by literature and it really formed lots of their worldviews but also what went into the pamphlets. Could you just give me a sense of what they were like as people? Yeah absolutely so they were middle class, they were generally well educated and one of the most striking things about this group is really how much they loved and were interested in literature and the arts and culture so they were musical they read huge amounts, banned literature, um, a lot of German literature, a lot of philosophy and theology. And so a lot of that was really about how they came together, how they found each other in a context in which it wasn't easy to express dissent and a context in which it wasn't easy to kind of go up to your friends and say, oh, I think, you know, I think we should probably overthrow Hitler and, you know, the, the risk of being 
denounced was very real and very present. And so literature and the arts and culture and religion also to an extent were ways in which these individuals found each other and it kind of influenced their decision to resist. And they were, I mean, the student members of the group were very young. They were all in their early 20s. Sophie Scholl, who was the youngest of the core group, was only 21 when she was executed. The group are now very well known for having written and distributed these anti-Nazi pamphlets. And as you say, it came to great personal risk. Could you tell me about the scale and the scope of what they're doing, how long they were able to do this for until it was discovered, and also how wide-reaching those pamphlets were spread? So the pamphlets really happen in kind of two phases. So in the sort of spring of 1942, all the White Rose members found themselves in Munich for different reasons. And it was in the summer of 1942 that Hans Scholl and Alex Morel wrote the first four of the pamphlets. Um, So they come out within the course of a fortnight, um, so very quickly. And for anyone who's read the pamphlets, you know, these are not the easiest texts. They are very challenging linguistically and also in terms of the rhetoric and the ideas. They use a lot of quotations from things like German literature, from ancient Chinese philosophy, from the Bible. So there's kind of a lot in them. So the first four pamphlets come out in that summer of 42. And then the second phase is in very early January, February 1943. This is a point at which the sort of course of the war is changing for Germany. It's going less well than it had been. And there's a kind of increased urgency among the members of the White Rose they really have a, a kind of even more acute sense of the need to really bring the war to an end and to speak to Germans, to try and get them to open their eyes to the atrocities that are being committed and to not only see what's going on around them, but also to, to have the courage to do something about it. And I just wanted to pick up on that, what the kind of mission and what their aim is with these pamphlets. What are they really calling for other Germans to do this what did this passive resistance that they talk about really mean for them so I think above all the pamphlets are calling on Germans to they say in the pamphlets you know to wake up out of their stupid sleep so they want people to stop being apathetic as they see it to recognize that Nazism is a system that is exploitative that is persecuting many, many people and that is waging a war in Europe which is totally devastating. And one of the most interesting things is almost how they kind of see into the future a little bit. So they're very concerned with with showing Germans or trying to get Germans to see, you know, what's going to happen when Germany loses the war. What is it going to be like when Germany's lost and Germany has to sort of refine its position within Europe? So they have this pretty amazing, in some senses, idea about the fact that not only do they need to bring the war to an end and get people to engage in passive resistance, peaceful resistance, but they also need to really start preparing for when the war is over and how Germany exists within Europe and the world at that point. Reading your book in the context of the current war in Europe, I think that idea of how Germany positions itself and how it's seen by the rest of the world and Europe in particular 
particularly kind of stands out. The core group are all executed in, in 1943 when the Nazi regime finds out about the pamphlet campaign and manages to identify the the core group. What is the legacy of the White Rose Resistance Circle? They, uh, it's funny, I've, so I, I run a project with students who are currently at the University of Oxford and we talk about the pamphlets, we read them, we talk about the White Rose and how it might be a source of, of inspiration or what we might think about it today. One of the things that we talk about a lot is, you know, what impact did the White Rose have? And a criticism that is made of the White Rose is that they didn't necessarily really change anything. So they called for an end to the war, but the war didn't end. They called on Germans to rise up and resist, and for the most part, they didn't. I think an answer to that question is that it really matters for Germany after the war that there was German resistance to Nazism, to fascism. It matters that there were young people who were willing to risk their lives to stand up for what was right. And so their their legacy has been not unfraught, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, but really they are a sort of source of inspiration and an example, an example of what might be possible and a way of thinking about precisely about our own times and how we as individuals can make a difference. That was Sophie Monaghan-Coombs speaking to Alexandra Lloyd about her new book, Defying Hitler, the White Rose Pamphlets, which is available now. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Lynn O'Donnell and Bill Hayton. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamanchou. And our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Listener.